0: Thought leadership from PWC. Welcome to PWC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. It's February, and as I said last week, that means for us accountants, it's reporting and earnings season. So, once again, this week, we're featuring a topic related to one of our most popular guides the Financial Statement Presentation Guide. And given the current economic condition, we're seeing a lot of questions around the topic of presentation of discontinued operations.
1: And I guess if you're ultimately finding yourself in disc ops, definitely lay out a timetable for getting all the recasting work done, depending on what your filing plans are like. Are you going to be doing a registration statement where you need to do it sooner rather than later? Uh, And I guess lastly, don't underestimate the effort it takes to segregate all of this information and all of the statements for all of the periods there's just we find there's just a tremendous number of very nuanced questions that come up until you kind of get into the details of it you just it's hard to predict what those questions would be and things aren't always that intuitive.
0: That was Jay Selber, partner in PwC's national office who specializes in business combinations and is one of our most frequent guests. Jay is joining us today to break down the accounting and reporting for DiscOps, a judgmental topic that may not be top of mind until it needs to be. And just from having this conversation with Jay, I can tell you, even if you're not in the middle of a disc ops, it's worth listening so you can understand what you may need to look for. And as always, Jay's a wealth of information and lots of interesting points to share. Let's listen to my conversation with Jay. Jay, welcome back to the podcast. It's been too long since we've had you on, so so happy to have you back. And I think it's a great topic we have today, and one that impacts a lot of companies, a lot of different points in their operations, and that would be discontinued operations or disc ops, as we'll call it. And I do think it's coming up more frequently, but perhaps just to kick things off, I think it's helpful to explain what we mean when we say disc ops and then what we're going to be talking about today.
1: Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me back here today, Heather. Always nice to join you in the studio. Um, I'd say when we talk about disc ops, what we mean is the presentation when a company disposes of part of its business and then recast all of its financial statements to separate out what it's keeping from what it just got rid of. Uh, so effectively, that means the company is really only just showing the ongoing business for all the periods and financial statements with effectively just a one-line presentation for the part that was being disposed. And we've talked about some of the specific presentation requirements in some other podcasts, along with some of the issues that often mm-hmm. come up. But as you said, since we continue to see a lot of companies selling or spinning off businesses in the current economic environment, I thought today we'd try to highlight some of the more judgmental areas and the tougher questions we often see when companies are thinking about disc ops.
0: All right. Sounds definitely like a plan. And so maybe just to kick things off from a broad perspective, what are some of the types of questions that you're getting?
1: Well, I guess I'd start with the DISCOps criteria themselves. Because we do get a lot of questions about that as, of course, folks are thinking about where to begin the whole process. Yeah, definitely a good place to start. (laughs) And the guidance does have a bit of important jargon to unpack because what it says is that the disposal of a component of an entity can be a disc ops if it represents a strategic shift that has or will have a major effect on the company's operations and financial results going forward.
0: All right. And I'm sure uh, you guys could hear the air quotes there. I know I do them myself, even (laughs) when you can't see me, that I'm air quoting. So uh, definitely some uh, important definitions that we should talk about. So taking them in turn, let's start with the first one, which would be a component. And I I think this comes up in other places as well. But what do we mean when we say component?
1: Or at least there's different phrases used in other guidance all about the unit of account. Exactly. And In this particular bit of guidance for DiscOps, what it says is a component is something that has operations and cash flows that can be clearly distinguished um, both operationally and from a sort of financial reporting perspective from the rest of the company. So that could mean it could be a segment. It could be a reporting unit, which is another bit of the guidance's terminology. It could be a subsidiary. It could be an asset group. Uh, we generally don't see it being lower than an asset group because those are also supposed to represent the lowest level of independent cash flows. So it'd probably be pretty hard to get down below that level.
0: Yeah, because then you would have defined your asset group wrong right. if if you were below that. But nonetheless, that's still very far down in the organization. And I think you know you could wind up with many of these discontinued operations. And I'm hoping we'll we'll get to when you have to report them. But understanding that, I know. You start way down, but then there's other criteria that can impact whether or not it meets the definition. So what else would we think about?
1: Right. And particularly the one that says it has to be a strategic shift in the business operations with a major effect. So that is trying to limit disc ops to, I'll call it more broader strategic changes in the business, not just selling off some assets. And the guidance change was probably like a decade ago mm-hmm. or more that sort of brought it back up to a higher level. But that is definitely where a lot more of the questions do come in. Now, sometimes that can be pretty easy to figure out, like if it's its own reportable segment or if it's just clearly a separate large part of the mm-hmm. business. But other times it can be a bit harder. So you have to look at all the relevant factors, including how much that piece of the business's potential components performance was previously disclosed separately in the MDNA or in earnings releases or in other public communications the company does in order to kind of make that judgment. Now, the guidance does have a number of examples to try to help you think through it. And those examples include getting out of things like major project lines or major geographical areas or major distribution channels. And the guidance says all of those could be a strategic shift, but there's definitely a lot of judgment involved. And that is definitely where we get a lot of questions.
0: Okay, so Jay, you also in your air quote definitions mentions a strategic shift, but we also said it has to have a material impact. And I know for most of our listeners, they would be familiar with sort of broadly, or I hope they're familiar broadly with how you think about materiality. But I would presume there's some specific things that you would be talking about here when you're assessing whether this would have a material impact.
1: Well, actually, Heather... The phrase in the DISCOPS guidance is a little different. It uses the words major effect, not material impact. So it isn't just talking about overall financial statement materiality. It might even be a bit higher of a threshold the way it's described, although there's probably some degree of overlap. Yeah, you do have to look at things like what is the relative impact on assets or revenue or income or cash flows or maybe even some of the non-GAAP measures that you're reporting as well. And the guidance doesn't have any bright lines over like what's enough, what's big enough to be a major effect. Uh, it does have some examples, and a few of the examples are things like selling a product line that represents 15% of mm-hmm. the company's total revenues, or selling a geographical area that represented 20% of the company's total assets, or uh, selling all of a company's type of store formats that historically represented like 30 to 40 percent of net income and maybe 15 percent in the current period so we do have some examples with some numbers in it yeah but uh the sec has commented in a speech back almost a decade ago Mm -hmm. or so when this guidance first came out that while those examples are illustrative Mm -hmm. uh, they aren't necessarily bright lines and you would have to look at all the quantitative and qualitative factors uh that goes into it and sort of how it's otherwise being described to investors. And is it something you've been highlighting to investors, which might suggest it's a bit more material Mm -hmm. to to them. So I guess I'd say like with many things we deal with, Heather, it it depends.
0: Oh, I kind of predicted. (laughs) Okay. But that's that's helpful. And I do think even those without those being bright lines, just order of magnitude wise, you're not talking about like one or 2% of the company. Right. right. And
1: a lot of times the examples and FASB standards are kind of Yep. wide goalposts. Right. Right? These are clearly in, these are clearly out, but there's a lot of gray left. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So at least we kind of know if it's above that, you, you probably are in. If it's below that, you better be thinking more broadly. Right. So that is helpful. And then anything else that you see, like other types of questions that come up specific to this?
1: Well, this is an interesting one that we do see come up here and there. And it's kind of an exception to that guidance or the the guidance about both of these yeah. areas that I was talking about. So so normally you have to think about, is it a strategic shift with a major effect? But we do run into one exception where if you've just bought a business and you have an immediate plan to dispose of some of what you just bought, like maybe because of regulatory requirements, mm-hmm. maybe a regulator is going to make you uh, dispose of a piece of the business for anti-competitive reasons or things like that, uh, and you meet the held-for-sale criteria either at or right shortly after you buy the company, then the guidance says you always present that mm. as discogs without having to go through that evaluation and I, I think the thought here is that since that this piece of the acquired business was never in your historical Yeah, results, it wouldn't make sense. and it's really never going to become part of your overall operations going forward it doesn't really make sense to have it in there for this little snippet of time that you owned it before you got to sell it so yeah. you get to pull that out and discogs.
0: Although it is interesting cuz it's not you never even really started the business, much less discontinuing it. But it it does make sense for the reasons you're giving to not sort of muddy up your regular results. So then with all of that said, I know that there can be different sort of views from companies in cases where they would like to actually present some of these disc ops or other cases where they would just assume not be dealing with all of that additional reporting. So how do you think about that? And in particular, I think the question often comes up from like a subsequent events point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, How do we
1: handle that? Right. So in terms of like what you're getting at is like, when do you present mm-hmm. discops? ops? Like, let's assume we get through all of those yes. meeting criteria. sorry, I should have
0: said that. Right. Yes. And, and
1: yeah, we, it is going to be a discops, ops. And the question is, okay, when do you present discops yeah. in your financial statements? Because that is recasting everything. And so that kind of depends on how you're disposing of it. So if you're disposing by sales, if you're going to sell a piece of your business, then you would go to disc ops once that business qualifies as held for sale under the guidance. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is typically before it actually is sold. But if you're going to dispose of it in some other fashion, like a spinoff, which we see a lot of as well, The guidance also explicitly says you you cannot record disc ops or reflect it as disc ops until that spin transaction actually closes and the spin has occurred.
0: All right. That's definitely helpful. But then I think there's still this open question is what if the spin happens after the balance sheet date?
1: Right. So in that case, what the guidance is also pretty clear, it says all of these criteria either get in a held for sale if it's going to be by sale or completing the spin if it's a spin. Those have to have happened by the balance sheet date in order to reflect the disc ops. So, if it happens in the subsequent events period, you disclose it, of course, but you don't reflect it. It's not recognized subsequent event. It's more of a type two in the, yeah. old, the old parlance, the yeah. unrecognized uh, subsequent events. Of course, you disclose it. Um, now, it may mean, if, especially if you're going to sell it a more likely than not expectation of the balance sheet date that you're going to sell it. Mm -hmm. So you might have gotten to more likely than not, just not held for sale yet. That could still be a trigger for an impairment test under the held for use guidance. So you may have to think about some accounting still if you're in that sort of subsequent event scenario, but you don't get to DiscOps presentation until the next period. All
0: right. Well, and I think you raised a good point there because all of this guidance on held for use, held for sale, and, you know, we've talked about it in past podcasts, but it is something, especially uh, this time of year, it's always good to have some reminders of how you should be thinking about whether or not something is held for sale. So what are some of the common factors that we would look to?
1: Right. Well, and we've talked certainly about it some more in some past podcasts, Mm -hmm. and I won't go through all of the criteria, which which is in the guidance. But probably one of the first ones that I see a lot of questions come up about uh, relatively recently is the first requirement in the guidance, which says that management, having the, or air quotes, the appropriate authority, (laughs) uh, commits to a plan to sell the business. And we get a lot of questions about like, well, who do we think? think about when it comes to these approvals. Like, is it internal approval Mm -hmm. or external approval? Um, You know, is it just within the company, like going to the board or the shareholders? Or what if you need approval by a third party, like a bank or a regulator or something like that, or the Department of Justice in in most cases? And what this specific criterion, anyways, is getting at, is really just approvals within the company. So in other words, it's clear the company has really committed to sell it. So that would mean that if the board or the shareholders Mm -hmm. have to approve it, or you plan to bring it to them for approval, then management doesn't have the appropriate authority on their own. They need that approval within the company's corporate governance structure in order to really commit to sell. So that's what this guidance is getting at. So if you haven't gotten approval from your board or your shareholders, and you're going to get that, then you haven't met this criteria yet. But conversely, needing to get approvals from an outside party, like a bank or Mm -hmm. a regulator, that's not in and of itself a problem, like a black and white problem. Uh, That's more of um, a likelihood. You'd have to consider the likelihood of whether you're going to get that approval, and is it substantive or is it relatively routine? Mm -hmm. And that could affect how you think about other criteria in the guidance, things like the sale being probable within a year and no significant changes Mm -hmm. to the plan are likely. And so... depending on how substantive you think that approval is from a third party, that could weigh on if you think you meet those criteria, and I will mention, heather, that we have seen some changes recently mm-hmm. in the news from the Department of Justice issuing some new guidelines about how they're evaluating deals, and it's a little bit stricter than maybe they've they've been doing it in the past. So certainly something to think about as you're going through that analysis.
0: Well, and I'm I come from the utility industry where regulator approval is a, a yes, very big yes. deal. So definitely something uh, something to deal with. And I do think it's an important point here you're really thinking about if it's the right level of management, But then there's almost like a second step where you have to think about that.
1: They are interconnected. Yes. Like so for my my point, I guess I'd leave listeners with is that if you're talking about internal approvals, it's black and white. Mm -hmm. either You have it or you don't. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about third party approvals, you don't have to have it. You just have to feel comfortable that you're going to get it.
0: Right. Okay, that's very helpful. And then what other ones would you highlight? Again, realizing there's a list of them in the standards. Right. The,
1: The other one I've been seeing a few times lately is and other of the requirements that the business has to be available for immediate sale in its current condition. And what is that really getting at? Since there's usually something that still has to happen before you can actually legally close the Mm -hmm. deal, right? You have to do some restructuring of legal operations or change around systems or something like that. But I think here what the guidance is really trying to get at is situations where sort of you're imposing your own operational limits on what you're willing to do. So the the guidance talks about situations where maybe you have some orders you need to finish and you just aren't willing to sell the business Mm. until you finish those orders because you, and you don't want the new buyer to take them over. And yeah, maybe that's because it's a bigger customer Mm -hmm. to the part of the business that you're keeping. And you really don't want that, let that buyer in on that relationship or Maybe the people that would go with this business are doing some critical R&D project for the rest of the company, and you need them to finish that before you're willing to let them go. So in those cases, the company is imposing sort of its own conditions for operational reasons. So in other words, they're really not... Willing to sell right now. Yeah. Like you need something to happen before you're willing to sell. Yeah. That's the case where the guidance says you probably shouldn't be in hell for sale because you're really not willing to sell it mm. today or, you know, as soon as you can get through the normal. Yeah. Steps yeah. of closing. Right. Right. And the like. right. But the question that we get is that it's not really getting at the situation where you might still still need to do, like I said, like some legal restructurings to get all of the assets and businesses into the right legal entities for tax reasons or mm-hmm. otherwise, or maybe need to split IT systems still to be able to separate the businesses out. The thought is those are all things that are kind of usual and customary yeah. to a deal, and they're pretty commonplace to get mm-hmm. a deal done. If uh, you know that's not a problem. Yes. If it was a problem, then we never get to help exactly sale, exactly because there's always something that has to be done, usually yeah. up to the last minute before the deal right plays.
0: right. And you have so, to do your carve out financials. I mean, all those types of things. Right. right. So the
1: view is that's usual and customary. Any. Buyer and seller, you're going to run into those things. It's when the company is sort of imposing its own operational Mm. restrictions. It says, I don't really want to sell it yet. I got to finish something first and then I'll go sell it. That's what it's getting at.
0: All right. That's a great reminder. So, and again, just a reminder to the listeners that there is a whole list of things you should be looking at for health for sales. So make sure you're looking at that guidance if you are considering this question. But Assuming that we have met the criteria now, what are some of the questions that you tend to get that are maybe more nuanced that may not be immediately
1: apparent? Right. So when you get into DISCOPs. Yes, ops,
0: when you're actually into DISCOPs. Right. Sorry. sorry. So
1: let's say we get through all of those hurdles yes. now and we're, we're in DISCOPs. So now we're actually into the questions of presentation and classification and the like. Um, I would say here the questions are often about what's in versus what's not yes. in disc ops, right? What do you have to keep in continuing ops mm-hmm. for the disc ops? And I'll start with the balance sheet. Uh, the In this case, the assets and liabilities that you put into disc ops and held for sale and, or the like, uh, generally those would reflect the assets and the liabilities that are actually being disposed of and being assumed by the buyer or the spinny, if it's a spin. And if if they are going to be taken over by the, the new owner's, then those would be presented separately in the asset and liability sections of the balance sheet and you would do that for all prior periods as well not just the current period but all all periods so you'd separate it out now on the income statement side which is really right where we get more of the questions here are the expenses that you we think you can include in discops mm-hmm. are the direct operating expenses of the component that's being disposed that can be reasonably segregated from the costs of the ongoing company, you know, a lot of this, the point of this discops guidance is to create some apples, yes. apples comparisons. Yeah. So for example, on the, the side, you can include them in there. That would be things like payroll and benefit costs for employees that work for the business mm-hmm. that's being disposed of, and they're going to go with the disposed business. And those costs are going away after the deal. Therefore, those would be viewed as direct costs. Those would go into discops. ops. But on the other hand, if their costs are expected to continue within the ongoing company, they probably shouldn't be allocated to disc ops. Uh, they just stay in continuing mm-hmm. ops. And that would be things like shared parts of the business or indirect costs or like shared accounting and legal mm-hmm. departments where the department isn't going with the discontinued part of the business. And the thought here, is, you know, back to what I was saying, you really can't allocate some of those costs to disc ops because they're going to continue mm-hmm. afterwards. So if you allocated some of the costs... To disc ops, like in a relative revenue yes. basis or relative headcount basis or something like that, you'd end up distorting your relative earnings going forward because now all of a sudden they'd be out in the past but back in mm-hmm. in the future when when you have your this what's left. So it would kind of look kind of weird. So that's why we don't allocate those costs.
0: Yeah, and I guess, Jade, just to clarify that point, you're saying that – and let's take an accounting department because that will be very familiar to everyone here. If there's accounting that's done centrally for the entire business, that – would not get allocated. Now, if this discontinued operations has its own accounting department, and those employees are part of that business, they they would go as part of this. I think
1: that's well said. Okay, yes. thank good, you. Good distinction.
0: All right. So then another question I know that often comes up in this area is debt, because there's some complexities there as, as well. And what do you do with the debt that's been used, you know, sort of, quote unquote, finance this business? So how do you think about that?
1: Sure. You're right. Question that does come up a lot. And in this case, the debt on the balance sheet side, you only include that in the discontinued operation if it's actually being transferred as part of the disposal, meaning the debt's actually being assumed by the buyer or taken by the spinny in a a spin. And it isn't just something where you're required to take the cash that you get on the sale Mm -hmm. and use it to repay the debt. So you can only put it in disc ops if it's actually part of the business that's going. But on the interest expense side in the income statement, it, it, the guidance is a little bit broader. In that area, it says that if the debt's either being acquired mm-hmm. by the buyer or being taken yeah. by the spinee or it has to be repaid at closing, let's say, by the bank agreements using some of the proceeds from the sale, then the interest expense on the debt would be included in disc ops in the income statement because it's going away and it's kind of viewed to be directly associated with it and that in one way, shape, or form. And then for other debt, more yeah. of a like corporate-level debt that really isn't attributable to any particular business, here the guidance gives you a choice. It allows mm. you to allocate some of the interest oh, okay. to DISCOPS using a, some formulas yeah. that are talked about on the guidance, but it's not required.
0: All right. That's helpful. And then, Jay, just to clarify then, in your first category of debt, even if that debt is down in the business that – let's assume it's a full business that's been sold that legally has its own debt – if that debt is not being transferred as part of the sale, then it would follow this guidance that you're giving yeah, you. I think
1: that's right. Like if, the bank agreements required it to be repaid at yeah. closing as opposed to transferring, transferring to, to the, the new owner. I yeah. think that's true. I mean, a lot of times I think if it's a standalone business, then it, it will go taken the yeah. debt with it. But if there's guarantees or something like that, it's possible the bank may require you to pay Okay, it. that's helpful.
0: And then how about, I know another area that there's questions around is taxes, as maybe some similar, some not, but so definitely complicated. So what would you say about that?
1: Yeah. Um, I would agree with you. It's really complicated. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, taxes is a, a tough part of DISCOPs, and that's because it's not always intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, I'll call it really specific guidance in the income tax literature about what's called, more air quotes, intra-period allocation mm-hmm. of taxes. And basically that tells you how much of the total tax provision you should allocate to DISCOPs. But I'd say it's probably too complicated to, yes. to get into the, the details uh, in this podcast. Either.
0: Okay, we'll have to do a whole separate podcast on disc ops and tax, which right. I actually think there we may have one out there. Yeah. So we'll yeah. we'll
1: link to it. Now, we do have a lot of discussion about it in our income taxes guide. There's okay. a whole chapter, it's chapter 12 I have here in my notes, that um, of the guide that talks about intra-period allocation. I, I'd suggest our listeners take a... A read through that because I said it's not always right. intuitive, especially if there's a mix of income and loss between continuing and discontinued ops. Or if there's other comprehensive income items that are in the mix because that's also part of the intra-period allocations. I would say an area that our listeners would probably want to work together with your tax team mm-hmm. and outside specialists on. But I would definitely say don't underestimate the complexity of it because it's not a simple area.
0: All right. That's that's helpful. And I guess, Jay, as we've been talking about this, I think there's a focus on the balance sheet and the income statement. And that is what I think people tend to focus on, although obviously disc ops actually can permeate <laughs> through the financial statements. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other areas you would recommend the companies focus on
1: as they're thinking about disc op reporting? So probably two main areas, and maybe I'll, I'll start... With um, earnings per share, Mm. or EPS, another topic near and dear to to me. Uh, And in this case, EPS, as my listeners probably know, has to be calculated for each component of income. So that would mean both continuing ops and Mm -hmm. disc ops and net income. So you'd end up with EPS for all of that. Uh, The guidance says that EPS for net income and EPS for continuing ops, that has to be presented on the face of the income statement. And the EPS for disk ops can either be shown on the face or in the footnotes, although I would say we most of the time see companies show it on the face as well. But I guess what I'd caution our listeners to, to about is that it's not always as simple as just breaking apart the previous numerator, Right. at a single company, taking your net income, and just allocating that between continuing and discontinued ops, and then just using the same denominator that you had before, uh, sometimes the denominator can change. And that's just, again, because of some of the intricacies of the EPS guidance. And in particular, what the guidance says is if you have a mix of, say, income or from continuing, a loss from discontinued, or vice versa, what you should look at is the income from continuing operations, to use a sort of, I think the phrase in the guidance is a control number to decide if things are dilutive or not to the calculations. And if they are considered dilutive to continuing ops, they're included for all the categories, like disc ops and net income, even if they would be like individually anti-dilutive to, to that one. So we get some weird things that pop up. So like, yeah, you know, so say for example, you have income from continuing ops, but a loss from disc ops, you might end up including the effect of stock mm-hmm. comp awards and the diluted EPS denominator for both even though it's going to make the disc ops loss smaller on a per share basis, which feels weird. but It does, right yes. Answer. But conversely, it can go the other way, where let's suppose you previously had just net income as a single company and you included some potential common shares in the EPS denominator for diluted EPS. But now when you go to disc ops, you end up with a loss from continuing ops and income from disc ops. Now, because it's a loss from continuing ops, you pull all of those out. Of the calculations for both, and because they're going to be considered anti dilutive. So now you've changed what your denominator right. was as a, as a result of that. And then while those are kind of like you know, always in or always out, mm-hmm. there are other instruments like convertible debt or convertible preferred stock where it's more of a function of the relative amount of your income vis a vis the interest add back or the dividend add back. And so again, if you just, even if you still go from income to income or uh, the like, you yeah. know, just that the relative amount changes you know, in the details of the calculation, you could get a different answer. So bottom line, I would say you have to redo all the calculations to make sure they're all getting updated correctly. You can't just assume that whatever you're denominator was is going to be the same denominator going forward
0: all right well that's definitely a complicated area and a lot to think about i will say we talked about some more i'll use sort of basic uh which i know is you eps people's favorite joke about <laughs> we we did talk about some other eps issues in a recent podcast i did and we'll include that in the show notes but I know you mentioned the other area is cash flow, yes. and this is a place where I know companies have some choices. So, how how do you think
1: about that? Well, probably the biggest thing I'd ask folks to take away is that putting something into disk ops or having a disk ops presentation doesn't change the nature of the cash flows mm-hmm. of that business as being operating, investing, and financing activities. Because uh, this does seem to pop up a lot, but the the guidance is pretty clear that you can't just pull out all the disc ops cash flows and put them in their own separate category for disc ops on the statement, sort of like you do for foreign exchange, right? right? You just put all the foreign exchange stuff on the bottom. You can't just have a thing aligned on the bottom for here's the disc ops cash flows. They have to be still separated. They still have to stay in their natural categories. Mm -hmm. Although, as you said, Heather, you do have some flexibility as to how you present or disclose them. Uh, The only thing the guidance says you have to do is you, you either have to uh, disclose or present the operating and investing cash flows for disc ops, or things like depreciation, amortization, capital expenditures, and non-cash activities for the disc ops. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. But admittedly, we typically see companies break them out, break out what's discontinued yes. from continuing ops for each of the three categories, in operating, investing, and financing, on the statement of cash flows to help their readers understand the pieces a bit better. But I say, again, I'll I'll end with where I started. Uh, the key thing is that they have to be in their respective categories, not all lumped together in one place. Yeah. I
0: think breaking out in their respective categories is to your point, probably the most useful, uh, you know, from someone looking at them because otherwise it can be confusing. But yes, I've had that question many times about, oh, can we just make this one line and you, and you cannot. So uh, the other thing with uh, disc ops, and I know we talked about held for sale as well. I know we have SEC filing requirements. Mm. So can you highlight a few of those?
1: Right, right. So for public companies yes. that have to contend with this, um, Maybe the first thing I'll mention before even getting financial statements, just because it comes up really fast yes. in this process, is that if a public company actually disposes of a business that is significant under the SEC rules, and there's a whole mm-hmm. whole section of the guidance around what does significant mean, then the company has to file an 8K, a current report on 8K, highlighting the key terms of the disposal with pro forma, financial information. And the interesting trick here when we get into DiscOps ops is that if you're going to ultimately account for that disposal as a DiscOps, ops, those pro forma financials you have to show are not just the most recent year, like the typical rules for pro formas, but it's actually all years that you're going to ultimately be recasting your financials for. So that would be three years for larger companies that are that present three years of income statements. So you have to have those um, numbers basically ready to go because, and this is the kicker, that 8K on a disposal has to you only have four days to be able to file that. The thought is you have all the information. You're not waiting for the yes. for information from a company you're acquiring, so you have to present it in four days. So you basically have to have it all done and ready to go by the time you finish the transaction. So you got to make sure you work that into your uh, into your timetable.
0: Yes, definitely. I think that's key. And I guess when you go back to your Customary, what's required to prepare for sale. Uh, thinking about this is, is probably one of the important points. But also, I know there's some other things you need to think about. You know, sort of on a broader basis.
1: Right, right. So then, getting to the, the financials side of it. So, you know, as we said, you present disc ops in your financial statements when you report on either the period that it becomes held for sale, if you're selling it, or when you spin it, if you're spinning it off that way. And at that point, disc ops means you're retroactively recasting all your financial statements for all prior periods so that everything is on an apples to apples basis and when i say all the, the 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 filings or all the financial statements it's not just the financial statements it's the footnotes mm-hmm. it's the mdna it's the business section it's basically everything in the filing to uh, separate out the continuing and discontinued ops and really just focus on the continuing part
0: all right so also a huge task but you do have more than 4 days for that one right
1: right so in that case the normal rules is that you would just do that in the next time that a filing comes up. So it'd be in the next Q, 10Q for your interim uh, filings, as well as the next 10K you file after either you go to help for sale or you do the spin. The next time you file your 10K is when you'd have to go back and recast everything. Uh, So you don't have to do it immediately. It's not like as soon as you do it, like if, if you did it in Q2, you don't have to go back and immediately recast all the prior year's financial statements in order to reflect that. You just do that the next time that filing comes around. But, and I know we've talked about this on some other podcasts uh, that you and I did together with with some of our SEC services Mm -hmm. folks, that that all could change if the company files a new registration statement or certain proxy or other filings. Because in those cases, since the company's including or incorporating by reference their most recent Annual and interim financial statements, and those have to be current under the SEC's rules at the time of that filing. And once a DISCOP happens, those old financials are stale. They they don't reflect your current numbers anymore. So that would mean the company would have to accelerate the whole process, recast all those prior period annual financial statements to reflect it in DISCOPs. And as I said, that's the whole. Shebang, you know, the mm-hmm. financials, the footnotes, the MDA, the business section, and the like, and you have to do that to do that a lot faster than maybe you might have been thinking about. So you have to again work that into your timetable.
0: And I think this is such a key point because I definitely have seen where this has been sort of an afterthought, and then suddenly they want someone wants to issue debt and they can't right. because they don't have this. So definitely very key. But if you're in that situation, Jay, obviously, then you're not filing those as part of sort of a regular filing. So where are those recasts? Financial statements
1: filed. Right, because it is viewed that your financial statements, when you file them, were correct. Right. So you don't have to amend your statements. It's not a 10KA. So what we usually just see is a company would file an 8K where they include in it the audited financial statements for the last several years, although it's interesting this whole, if you have this situation, it may mean you're stuck doing an extra year because if you could have just yes. waited till your next 10K was due, you would show the current year and then the most recent two years. But if you're, say, a larger company, right. it has to present three years. But if you have to go through this process and do it sooner, you still have to show three years. Mm-hmm. So now you got going to go three years back. Right. So it means a whole nother year that you got to go do this process for. So definitely something you, you want to lay out beforehand yeah, and know and don't what you forget. have ahead of you.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. So Jay, I'm mean, a huge number of considerations. And again, I think to our listeners who are mostly from accounting, auditing, etc., they're the ones that have to focus on this. The deals guys may not be so concerned about some of these timelines and otherwise when they're putting together these exciting deals. So what reminders just from your experience working through this would you give or what advice would you give to our listeners if they suddenly are pushed into having to deal with you know a disc
1: ops? <laughs> mm. Well I suppose I could always start with stay close to your yes. deals and business guys. <laughs> there and make you sure go, everyone, very good point. <laughs> connected, so that so that you connect the dots here. Yes, um, but I guess if you're if you're start if you're entering this process, mm-hmm. I, I I'd recommend starting with I'd say answering the big questions like how are you going to be disposing of the business? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be a sale? Is it going to be a spin? Is it something else? Uh, and then is it a strategic shift? Or thinking through is it a strategic shift with a major effect? That can be treated as a disc ops because that's, of course, going to drive how you present things and when you would do it. And I guess if you're ultimately finding yourself in disc ops, definitely lay out a timetable for getting all the recasting work done, depending on what your filing plans are. Like, are you going to be doing a registration statement where you need to do it sooner rather than later? Uh, And I guess, lastly, don't underestimate the effort it takes to segregate all of this information and all of the statements for all of the periods. There's just, you know, we find there's just a tremendous number of very nuanced questions that come up and until you kind of get into the details of it. You just, it's hard to predict what those questions would be and things aren't always that intuitive.
0: Well, yeah, I think anyone who's been involved in even one discops ops will, will echo that comment. So obviously, Jay, huge amount of information here. If our listeners want more information, where's the best place to go?
1: Well, I'd say we, we both mentioned a couple of mm-hmm. past podcasts, uh, Heather, and you know maybe a pair that I'd highlight is one that we did back in October of 2020 with Beth Paul and Steve Dolph. Uh, they talked about some of the other disk ops matters and things, things, some of the areas we were talking about today, but some other things too. And then there was also one in October of 22. Where Reto Meccaluzzi talked more about the help for sale criteria, some of the other criteria that we didn't get a chance to talk about today. So that's that's good stuff to, to listen to. And then, in terms of some of the printed guidance, mm-hmm. um, in our property, plant, and equipment guide, I think chapter five goes through the help for sale guidance. And then in our financial statement presentation guide, we have a whole chapter dedicated to DiscOps. It's chapter 27 except for the cash flow part. That's that's in a different chapter. That's in the cash flow chapter, which is chapter six, is where we talk about it there. And then I think I mentioned that um, in our income taxes guide, we have a whole chapter, chapter 12, that goes through the intra-period tax allocation process. So don't, don't lose sight of that one either.
0: All right, so definitely a lot of resources to go to. And of course, Jay, they can always pick up the phone and call you. Absolutely. So there you go. So Jay, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me yeah, today.
1: You're, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.
1: This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors, including accountants and lawyers.